will get baptised tonight. Why would they think it's important to stand in front of you tonight and be baptised? What, what, why would we do this? Well, one of the reasons is that Jesus did it. Uh, Jesus, when he walked the earth, he was baptised. John said, no, you shouldn't I shouldn't baptise you, you should baptise me. And John said, Jesus said, no, you know, it's right, you baptise me, John. You know, Jesus wasn't sinful, he was sinless, but he set an example for us to follow. So these three are getting baptised, following the example of Jesus. You know, another reason why uh, we, we baptise people tonight is that Jesus commanded that we baptise people. He said uh, his last words before he was ascended up to heaven was, you know, go into all the world baptising and teaching people to obey all that I've commanded and I'm with you always to the end of the earth. So as this happens tonight, we're doing what Jesus commanded us to do in baptising and as you're baptised, guys, you're obeying God's commands. Uh, another reason is that it really shows that you're a believer. You know, Jesus said, uh, if you love me, you'll do what I command. And by obeying and following this teaching and being baptised, you're just saying, yep, I belong to Jesus. If he says it, I'll do it. There's a real uh, surrender that these people are showing by being baptised. They're just being obedient. There's no questions asked. They're just saying, yep, if Jesus says we should do this, this is what we'll do. Um, what, what does it mean? Tonight you're going to see people walk uh, into the water up here. There's no magic water tonight. We haven't put any, you know, holy things. People haven't been praying over it. It's just normal water, nothing mysterious. But what will happen is people will come into the water and then I'll put them right under the water and then we'll pull them back up again, hopefully. <laughs> and, and what that's symbolising is, is simply the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And those who follow him identify with him. We, we died to ourselves. And because Christ was died and buried and rose from the dead, now those who have their faith in him die to themselves, receive the forgiveness that, that Christ earned on the cross in his death and resurrection. And we rise to new life. And that's just being symbol, symbolised through that. It does... Does baptism make you a Christian? No. Just like my wedding ring doesn't mean that I'm married. Uh, I actually am married, and you could wear my wedding ring, and it wouldn't mean that you were married to Mandy. The, the wedding ring is simply a symbol of something that's already happened. Mandy and I are married. This just is a symbol of it. Well, baptism tonight is a symbol that these three have given their lives to Jesus. And it's just saying, we've done that. We trust in Jesus. And now we want to publicly declare that to everyone here tonight. We love him and we're following him. So why don't you give these three people a warm welcome. Josh Docking, Kylie Brown and Sylvia McDowell. So why don't we welcome them as they come up now. And before they get baptised, uh, they're just going to share a testimony of, of why they're getting baptised tonight, what God's done in their life. So Josh, Josh is going to come and share. Thanks, mate. Hello. All right. Hi. If uh, you don't know me, I'm Josh Docking, and I'm 20 years old, and this is my testimony. Um, I spent my early years in the Northern Territory, living in an Aboriginal community, um, this is where I was, I was six years old and we moved to Aubrey where I started to attend a public school. 
I'm the youngest of four children, and I have always looked up to my parents and older siblings, and I still do. I can't recall a time where I didn't believe in God. So I think this is uh, because I was brought up in a devoted Christian family. I could see God moving within, moving within my family, which made me believe that God was real. Um, as I got to the age where I could make my own decisions, I decided I needed to follow, follow Jesus. This is probably still as a result of my family's beliefs. At this stage, I honestly couldn't imagine people not knowing God because I'd grown up knowing him, being real my whole life. I just knew I could pray and he would listen. I made a decision at... Um, have I read that? I'm not sure. <laughs> I made a decision at a, at a young age to follow, follow Christ. Dad was with me when I asked Jesus into my life through a simple prayer. I slowly grew, slowly grew in the knowledge of what it meant to be a Christian. But, put, uh, but putting this, in, this knowledge into action proved difficult at times. I went to a public school and brought, that brought about some challenges for me, but I, um, I made sure that my mates knew my beliefs and I um, made sure that they accepted that. It made it easier for me. Um, the encouragement from my friends and family was a real support. Um, at the stage of at, at the start of last year, I joined a Bible study with mates from church, and this really grew me closer to God because of the honesty in the group and um, yeah the accountability in the group, which is really helpful. Um, it made my Christian walk more real, and I just felt the passion to live more for God. I know when I pray, I know when I pray, God listens. I know without a doubt that He has answered prayers in my life. Being a Christian to me means that I believe that Jesus was the Son of God and that he came down to earth to bridge the gap of sin between God and us. Being a Christian gives me a purpose to life. It gives me a sense of belonging and of love in all circumstances. I'm still amazed that the creator of the universe loves me and wants the best for me. I know that I'm sinful, and we all fall short of God's glory. But this baptism is really declaring to God that all of you here, and all of you here, that I'm surrendering my whole life to follow Christ. And that by this love and sacrifice on the cross, I'm able to be in a relationship with him. He is offering a gift of grace and eternal life. I'm simply accepting it and know without a doubt that someday I'll be with him in heaven. Thanks. And now Kylie Brown's going to come and share. Thanks, Kylie. For some people, becoming a Christian happens at a certain point in their life. They can remember that exact point in time. I don't think there was a point that I can say, this is when I became a Christian. I grew up in a Christian family. My parents are both Christians. And while I was growing up, I went to church with my family. My parents were also very involved in the youth at our church and ran the youth group. So I spent a lot of time with other Christians as I was growing up. I grew up knowing and believing God. Throughout secondary school, I started to head away from my Christian beliefs. I felt like I had to fit in with the other students and avoided telling people I went to church. My parents gave me the choice whether, I w whether or not I wanted to go to church with them once I had reached high school. I continued going with my parents, but this was probably more because I wanted to please them, not because I wanted to go myself. Church didn't seem relevant to me as a teenager. When I started university three years ago, one of my housemates came here to church. One night I decided that I would give it a go. I mean, what did I have to lose? 
I slowly came to realise the relevance of Jesus in my life. I started to want to go to church and to learn more about God. During the first year at uni, I invited Jesus into my life. I started going to small group and learning more about Jesus. This has been the best decision in my life. Living my Christian life, I felt the support of the strength of God through both the good and the difficult times. I'm continually amazed by his love and strength to work through people. Jesus has given me a purpose in life. And now Sylvia is going to come and share. Thanks, Sylvia. Good evening. For as long as I can remember, I have believed in God and his son, Jesus. When I was young, I was involved in church and attended regularly. At age 18, I went to the city to train as a nurse. This was a huge change in my life, and I got involved with all the changes and was distracted away from our Lord. Even sometimes later, married, mother of three young children, when a sudden disaster left me alone with my children, I still didn't turn to the Lord for help. It would have been a great thing to do, but I thought I can handle this on my own. Moving around a bit, finally I moved to Wodonga with Jim, my husband of many years now. Christmas 2008, last Christmas, was like a defining moment in my life. My oldest son and his family were visiting and on Christmas Eve he asked where we were going to church on Christmas Day. I had to think quickly, so I said, the church down the road and we can walk there. And they're into fitness, so they were quite in favour of that. So we all turned up and Jonathan greeted us at the door and my son said, who is that? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and later, my son turned to me and said, Mum, he's the pastor. <laughs> but from that time on, I've continued to come to this church because I don't quite know what happened on that day, but when... Jonathan was giving the sermon. He said, God loves you. And wow, he said it to me. So here I am, seven months later, seeking baptism with encouragement and support from my husband, my daughter and her husband, and three of my grandchildren who are here tonight and those members of my precious small group. I don't know that I would be here without their support and encouragement. Being a Christian to me is the great joy of my life as one of God's magnificent family and to recognise Jesus Christ in my life, I pray that I can be worthy of his love. And why don't we just pray as they prepare to be baptised now. God, we thank you for what you've done in these three people's lives. God, we thank you for the way you've revealed yourself to them and they have responded. And God, tonight as they're baptised, we want to thank you for the joy uh, that you bring. Forgiveness, new life, meaning, purpose and a hope for each day. And we praise you. God, we ask that you'd strengthen them at this moment. Holy Spirit, that you would just fill them. 
and overwhelm them afresh. And God, give them the strength for each day that lies ahead as they live for you each and every day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Josh, here we are, mate. I want to just ask you some questions. Have you turned from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Saviour? I have. Great. And do you commit yourself to being Jesus' disciple and to serving Him through His by His grace? I do. Great. Well, Josh... Because we've heard your testimony and because you put your faith in Jesus Christ, I now baptise you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Carly. It's not really. <laughs> Let me ask you though, Carly, have you turned from your sin and have you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Saviour? I have. Great. I want to ask you, Kylie, do you now commit yourself to being Jesus' disciple and to following him uh, in his church by his grace? I do. Great. Well... Kylie, we've heard your testimony. We know that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so now, in front of all these witnesses, I baptise you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Too warm though. I'm the pastor. You're the pastor. <laughs> and now as your pastor, it gives me great pleasure to just ask you these questions, Sylvia. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour? And has you have you turned from your sin and turned to Jesus? I have. Great. Sylvia, do you commit to being Jesus' disciple? and to follow him uh, through his church by God's grace? I do. Great. Well, Sylvia, we've heard your testimony and we've known of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I now baptise you. Let's stand and give. Well, just when you think you're holding everything together, 
I got back from being baptised. One daughter helped me to see if I was wet or dry. The other said, Dad, everyone saw your board shorts. <laughs> she said, Ashley Rosevear has been laughing at me. So the, <laughs> is that right? I thought you couldn't see them underneath there, but anyway, maybe I'll bring the waders out next time, hey? <laughs> Isn't it wonderful to see them uh, be baptised and make their declaration of faith? Um, it, it's great to see that. Tonight, in the time that we have left, I just want to talk to you about what Jesus would say to an atheist. And we're just going to spend that time talking tonight, and it seems, you know, a highly appropriate time to talk about it while... People make a declaration of faith public like this, declaring that they want to just do what Jesus has asked and, and be baptised. Um, it, it's important to ask this question today because I think many people are, are asking, uh, you know, is faith valid today? I, is there any credibility in having any kind of faith? Do you have to uh, be a little bit crazy to have any faith. And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but like five, ten years ago when I walked into a newsagent, the, the place where I liked to interestingly stop and look was in the New Age kind of section because there were more and more books coming in the New Age um, section and people looking and I was just amazed to see so many books being written that people would read about New Age religion. But today, as I go into newsagents, I'm staggered by the best sellers in newsagents are often... Uh, atheists now writing uh, in a way that is not only, um, you know, writing for other atheists to find faith in atheism um, together, but also quite militant against Christians. And it's quite, uh, you know, pretty, um, how would you say, likely that you would be in your workplaces or in your family or wherever you are, maybe you've, you'll be contacting people who have read the books. Uh, Dawkins uh, has, has written one, Richard Dawkins, um, called um, The God Delusion. And then there are so many others that have been read. A Letter to a Christian Nation by Sam Harris. Other um, atheists like Daniel Dennett. Uh, have, have written prolifically lately and a lot of these people are writing in such a way that make people who have faith seem uh, really just quite odd and, um, and strange. And so tonight I come to you to talk about what would Jesus say to an atheist in a kind of environment where atheists are writing a lot, a much and are kind of discrediting people for having faith. And so I wish I was a scientist tonight. Um, I'm not. I'm just Jonathan Stark, and I've done studies in theology. I have a degree and a diploma, but I wish I had studies in science tonight. So as we come tonight, I'll just let you know, I'm really someone who's been reading a bit and really trying to wrestle with this issue myself, but I don't come as an expert. I just come as someone who has kind of, kind of tried to read um, and, and come up with some of the answers that I think we could say today to what an atheist would, would say makes our faith, you know, seem a little bit unbelievable. So here's some of the books that I've been reading lately. Nicky Gumbler's wrote uh, a, a book called Searching Issues, and in there he talks about God and science and whether the two are mutually exclusive or whether there's any common ground between the two. 
Tim Keller has wrote a fantastic book called The Reason for God. And in this, he talks about um, the church and he talks about whether, uh, about God and, and also science as well and whether, you know, there's any compatibility. Uh, a Case for a Creator is by Lee Strobel, who's a former Chicago Tribune journalist who's investigated not only the claims for Christ, the claim f- case for a creator, but also the case for faith. And this is another book that he's written as well. And many of these books interact with um, what a group called the New Atheists are, um, that are emerging. And so this is a book that I have um, been looking at. It's called The New Uh, The Truth Behind the New Atheism, written by David Marshall as well, and I've been reading and interacting with some of these as well, looking at online sites where there's discussions with atheists and Christians about faith. And so here I am, and we've got just a little bit of time to look together at some of these questions and see if there really is um, any any, uh, reason why we should keep believing in Christ if we have faith or whether there's so much evidence that this is just not the right thing to do, that we should pack it all in. So I've put down three questions that I think perhaps the uh, atheists of today are asking and saying, and perhaps these are the major ones. And so here they are, and we'll just take them one at a time. Have Christians lost their mind is the first question. Have Christians lost their mind? Aren't uh, scientists too bright to kind of... Believe in God. That's the first kind of thing, you know. Um, is that is it is it okay? You know, is blind faith just you know ridiculous cop out? You get that? Have Christians lost their minds? Are they a bit loopy in having faith? Or you know, is it that science scientists are too bright that they don't believe in God? Kind of that question. Then the second question that I think atheists are asking is, some, uh, since miracles contradict science, then they can't be true. And the implications of that, you know, since miracles contradict science, then they can't be true. Uh, obviously, that means that the immaculate conception, um, you know, like the virgin birth, the uh, resurrection, uh, so many of Jesus' miracles then can't be uh, they, they contradict science, so therefore they can't be accepted and, and therefore faith is unrealistic. And the final question is evolution explains life, doesn't it? I mean, haven't they told us, haven't evolution, hasn't evolution proved where life came from and therefore now answered that the question in such a convincing way that God isn't needed anymore? Firstly, have Christians lost their mind? Uh, a scientist too bright to believe in God. One common charge, one common claim that uh, in religion, uh, a, a, a common claim amongst atheism is that religion in general, you know, all broad different kinds of religion and Christianity in particular uh, is unscientific and it's irrational and it's simply based on, on faith. So... One of the uh, chapters in a book by Daniel uh, Dennant, he said, says the, these words. He, he, he writes this in a chapter called Belief in Belief. And he says, people of all faiths consider it demeaning to ask God tough questions. And so you've just got to have a faith which doesn't ask tough questions of God. 
the, the meme for blind faith secures its own perpetuation by the simple unconscious expedient of discouraging rational inquiry. So they're saying the normal way faith works is that people who believe together uh, don't allow rational inquiry and people are just belief and believe. So Christianity in particular, he asserts, is addicted to blind faith. Uh, David Marshall in his book, uh, you know, uh, 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 talking about the new atheists, this one here, the truth behind new atheism, he, he says, um, without offering any evidence, it's true, uh, quoting no Christian, uh, so, so he's saying that these atheists just say this, the blind faith is what Christianity demands. But what happens is these atheists then say, this is true without offering any evidence to show that Christianity is based on just blind faith. Are you with me so far? Let me just repeat that one more time. Atheists say Christians just believe blindly without any rational, you know, real reason for faith. And that, you know, is just unbelievable. But when they say that claim, they don't offer any evidence to that's true. So, for instance, they quote each other saying that Christians just believe blind faith uh, rather than quoting actual Christians because I think for most of us we would know that Christians would never say that they believe blindly in something that is irrational. Do you agree with that? But listen to what it says here um, in a letter to a Christian nation by Sam Harris. He calls faith nothing more than the licence religious people give to one another to keep believing when reason when reasons fail. Faith is nothing more than the licence religious people give to one another to keep believing when reasons fail. Harris uh, writes in his book, The End of Faith, Religion, Terror and the Future of Reason, writes, Tell a devout Christian that his wife is cheating on him or that frozen yoghurt can make him invisible and he's likely to require as much evidence as anyone else. To, and to be persuaded only to the extent that you give that evidence. Tell him that the book he keeps by his bed was written by an invisible deity who will punish him with fire for eternity if he fails to accept every incredible claim about the universe and he seems to require no evidence whatsoever. You can see what they're saying, uh, quite strong uh, Richard Dawkins, in his seminal 1976 work on, uh, called The Selfish Gene, um, defined faith as a kind of mental illness, a kind of mental illness. And um, some more specifically, and, and more specifically, a state of mind that leads people to believe something, it doesn't matter what, in the total absence of supporting evidence. Christians make a virtue of believing not only in the absence of evidence but in the teeth of evidence. So what, what he's saying, Christians uh, not only believe when it's silly to believe but when there is evidence all around that there is no God and they're in the teeth of evidence to the contrary. So he's saying Christians having any faith seems absolutely Ludicrous, And we must ask ourselves, is it possible that these guys who are making these claims are guilty of doing the very things that they claim Christians 
to do by having blind faith. So, for instance, saying Christians have faith which is this and defining it, when I don't think there's any Christian through history that would say faith is believing in something that's irrational for, because that's just what we, we choose to do. Christians actually believe in something because they have weighed the evidence, because they're responding to uh, the, what they what they seem what they sense as the promptings of God. Now it's not all, always scientific. Sometimes it's experiential, but sometimes it is through fact and through looking through the evidence and weighing it and coming to a point where the evidence is so great that they say, "I'm going to believe in this because it seems so certain to me." I think there are very few Christians today who say, in spite of the improbability of faith being real and God being real, I'm going to believe anyway. For example, the atheists claim that Christians rely uh, on ancient and discredited eyewitnesses for faith. But really, the truth is, almost everything that we know today is based on the testimony of others, isn't it? I mean... The fact that Hawthorne won today against North Melbourne, I, I, I'm only believing that because it was on the radio, you know? But I actually can be reasonable in belief in that because the radio is quite a credi- credible source of information. Well, well, the way that Christians believe is because we've felt that there are credible sources that are telling us about what God has done and how he has acted. And it's just the way that we believe the, the numbers in the lotto were these numbers and not those numbers and that the weather you know, for yesterday was, was this. The evidence that we believe is based on the credibility of the witnesses. The claims of the gospel writers can be assessed and they can be evaluated just like we weigh up the evidence of any other eyewitness. The Bible often appeals to uh, reason, um, empirical facts and, ex- uh, and experiment. And Christians are not just to take blind leaps of faith, we agree, but to examine the evidence and to test the claims that are being made. That's where, what our faith is. Uh, fact The fact is that faith is a settled conviction where we feel that we have evidence that's ample enough to have a settled conviction about that. Many people turn uh, to the Bible. Uh, Many atheists, in fact, turn to John 20. Why don't we turn there together now, if you have it? John chapter 20. And they look at Thomas and they say, here in... In John chapter 20 is evidence that Jesus doesn't want his followers to have faith at all. And here's the passage about Thomas. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came and resurrected from the dead. So other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. This is in verse 25. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, uh, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, 
Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And people say, see, there it is right there. Jesus says, you know, uh, Thomas, because you, didn't, because you needed evidence, you're not blessed. But those that believe without evidence are blessed. But that just misses the whole sense of the passage, don't you think? I mean, the whole passage is that Thomas says, I'm not just going to blindly believe. Uh, like you say he's risen, but I, unless I see him, unless I touch him, unless I feel and, and actually have the evidence that I need, I won't believe. And so Jesus doesn't say, you silly man, I'm not going to show you any evidence if you can't believe. He actually goes and he says, touch my, touch my feel. This is it. This is me. And Thomas says, oh, my Lord and my God. And he says, yes, you believe, you believe. And, and how great it's going to be for people who won't have the privilege of touching me and feeling that to believe also. Not blindly without any faith, but based on evidence, you know, not being able to touch him, but the evidence and testimonies of others. So the passage that's used to discredit faith and say we just need to have blind faith actually builds faith. It shows how important faith is. Jesus doesn't say that we should check out our brains and just blindly believe, but we should look for evidence and we should trust uh, as we look for evidence. Another passage that's really been used often by uh, atheists to say how ridiculous faith is, is Hebrews chapter 11. And it starts off like this, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. And this is what it says. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And atheists say, what a joke. It's a joke. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we actually can't see, certain of things that are invisible or, or made up. But again, as you look at this verse, it says, now faith is, faith is being sure being sure, faith is evidence, it's the certainty of what we hope for. It's actually saying, is there a God out there? Well, we're looking at the evidence and faith is actually coming to a certainty, coming to a surety and saying, because we have looked, because we have wrestled, because we have thought, we put our faith in a God who we have reasonable evidence enough to believe in. Far from blind faith. Blind faith is not what we ask people to believe. In fact, we never as a church say, just believe because I say so. I love you to get your Bibles out or do prior reading or reading around the, the, the text to, to read it, to wrestle with it, because we're not wanting you just to become followers of Jonathan. If God is real, for crying out loud, you'll follow him without me. I want to encourage you and help you, but you know, I'm not the one you should be following. It's Jesus. I loved it last Sunday. We had uh, some people come and um, after the service, I was just talking to them and um, one of the people pulled me aside quietly and said, you know, I, I don't believe. I don't believe. I don't believe in heaven or hell or angels or anything. But I found what you said very interesting. And I thought, that's exactly what I love. Being a pastor of a church where you can come and investigate. Church is not just about making everybody believe the same thing. 
God is reaching out to people and changing lives. And we want to have a, an, a church where people can worship him and come to know him and ask questions and have doubts where they can talk about them and actually grow in their faith. Because faith is not checking out your brain and filling it up with some brainwashing. It's actually looking for evidence of Jesus and coming to faith, not blindly, but through the testimony of his word, of transformed lives, of all that we see God is doing around us and having faith in him. Point one. Uh, Have Christians really lost their mind? No, no, not at all. A scientist too bright to believe in God. I just need to touch on this quickly. Um, Another claim is that there's an inevitable sort of conflict between science and faith, but just briefly want to touch on this before we get to the second point. Um, Rodney Stark is a, a sociologist, and he notes that 52 of the greatest science scientists between 1543 and 1680 were almost all devout believers. There were two that were sceptics. So from this incredible period of 15. 43 to 1680, almost all were devout believers. So a lot of the the thoughts and ideas that came through science came from Christians. So to say, you know, science is all about uh, this and not got anything to do with Christianity. No, Uh, a lot of the foundation and thoughts that have come through science have been through men and women of faith. Even Darwin relied heavily on Anglican natural theology, Um, thus evolutionary philosopher Michael Ruse can argue that without Christianity, I doubt we would have Darwinism. Uh, Western intellectual history was largely Christian history. And every great European thinker from John of Paris to John Locke was steeped in the Bible. And they're just not two fields separate apart. Christianity has greatly influenced science and science, you know, you know, just don't need to separate them in our minds. So the second question is, uh, miracles contradict science, so they can't be true. And this is what uh, Dawkins wrote. He wrote, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even Old Testament miracles are all freely used for religious propaganda. And they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. There you go. So if you believe in miracles tonight, Dawkins says you're an under, unsophisticate or a child. Uh, in the book, The Case for the Creator, uh, uh, The Case for Faith, sorry, Lee Strobel interviews Dr. William Lane and he asks him about miracles. And Dr. William Lane Craig, he's an author and he's a research professor in philosophy, as a theologian, he's a member of many professional societies. And Craig shares with Lee Strobel that, you know, when he initially, as a, as a young, young man, started looking at the Christian faith, a big block for him was the, the virgin birth. He said, I, I, I knew, I, I'd already done a lot of um, study and knew that for Mary to have a son, she would have had to have some male chromosomes, uh, you know, uh, 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 to be able to produce a baby. And he thought that was just fanciful. And yet he became a Christian and uh, he, he, he said, um, 
uh, Lee Strobel, when he was interviewing, said, how on earth did that happen? And he said, well, what happened was the person of Jesus and the truth of his message was so compelling and so powerful that they simply overwhelmed any residual doubts that he had. So here he has a, a real concern about the virgin birth. And yet, as he's listening and understanding about the claims and truths of Jesus Christ, he responded in faith. And Strobel says to him, that's ridiculous. He said, uh, you know, um, uh, weren't you rushing headlining into something you didn't totally accept? And Craig uh, said, oh, no, I think this can be a pretty good procedure. You don't need to have all your questions answered to come to faith. You just have to say, the weight of the evidence seems to show this is true. So even though I don't have all the answers to all my questions, I'm going to believe and hope for answers in the long run. And what he found was as he looked to Jesus, he felt, well, if Jesus is who he says he was, if he is the son of God, if God's the creator of the world, then he can easily do this and it really didn't have much of a bearing on him anymore. But then he looked for the evidence and continued his search. And when it comes to miracles, the problem seems that atheists seem to have, when it comes to miracles, is that they're incompatible with science, which by definition deals with the natural, the repeatable, and that which is governed by law. So uh, this is the way what science uh, measures. But miracles are not contradictory to science. Um, miracles just lie outside of science. You might say, well, isn't that the same as being contradictory? Well, it's like a science that you know, measures and looks and repeats what nat naturally occurs is also outside the realm of ethics. So science doesn't make ethical um, statements. It, lies outside of that field. So the, the, judge, the judgments and the goal of science is to seek natural explanations and therefore miracles are outside of the natural explanations of But they don't contradict. They're just outside of that field. So the great sceptic David Hume defined miracles as being violations of the laws of nature. But... William, uh, Craig, William Lane Craig says, no, that's not true. Miracles aren't violations of laws. They're actually just, uh, it, it, this is what he says. He says, you see, natural laws have implicit uh, ceteris paris paribus. Ceteris paribus. You understand that, everybody? It's Latin meaning all other things being equal. So in other words, natural laws assume that no other supernatural things are going to happen, okay? So for instance, when it comes to um, something like uh, the, the death of people, uh, they would look and they'd say people are born, then they die. People are born, then they die. You, you can look at this, you can look at evidence right down the, the ages. This is how we know. This is the... All things, you know, the working uh, together, you see the, the natural laws, all things being equal, people who are born will die. Another 
but every now and again, something interjects but doesn't flip the law on its head. So it would be like if an apple falls from the tree, what law is operating there? Law of gravity, right? So, but if I just inter interfere and grab the apple before it hits the ground, have I defied the law of gravity? No. I've just grabbed in and taken it out. I've, I've actually come in and I haven't defied the law of gravity. I'm a, someone who's come in from the outside and grabbed it and here I am. And so the natural laws are still the same. It's just that there's been an outward interjection into the laws. And so what happens with miracles, they're when the natural laws, God intervenes and doesn't overthrow the law. It's just that he works a miracle in the midst of that. So they're not exclusive. But what will happen is scientists will look and they say, we just measure what naturally happens. A miracle will take place and they go, oh, that's not natural. That's not something that we see ordinary. Well, we can't even look at that. We can't even take the fact that something supernatural has happened. But perhaps that's not the best way of looking at it. Because when you look at what naturally happens, when something interferes, you can still look at the evidence of whether it happened or not. And the actual resurrection is a good uh, example of this. So Hume, this uh, sceptic from the 18th century, said, evidence for the university of nature is so conclusive that any evidence for miracles would never be able to overcome it. Right? So Hume says, we look at how things normally work and for there to be miracles, the, the way in which things look, we know so conclusively that they work this way that if there was a miracle, we wouldn't believe it because it's not the way that things normally work. So his argument runs this way. People live, then they die. We've looked at that. People who live, die. People who live, die. People who live, die. Jesus comes along, raised from the dead. Can't happen. Why? On the grounds that everybody who's lived has died. It's just uh, natural laws cannot allow for a miracle like that to happen. But the logic of this argument goes that because everybody, has, everybody lives, died, there can't be someone who lives, dies, and is raised uh, from the dead. But that's not a logical um, way of scientifically measuring evidence. The way surely to measure that is that because this one died uh, and rose again, we wouldn't have to prove that this happened by saying that everybody else had to die and rise from the dead again. What we would need to do is prove that this one actually did rise from the dead to have the evidence. I'm, I'm, I'm not being clear, am I? Are you? A little bit? Good on you, Gar. You always think I'm being clear, don't you? Um, let me just try and read this a little bit. We would have to agree with... Oh, here we go. The truth is that there's no contradiction between believing that men generally stay in their graves and that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. Christians can believe both. So we have thousands of years of uniform evidence, this is what Hume said, that people simply do not return from the dead. So Hume says no amount of evidence would be able to overcome that tremendous presumption. But what we're saying is Christians say we can believe that people who die 
normally stay dead. We can hold that. That's the normal natural laws. But we can also hold that in this case, we have evidence to show that this one lived again. Now, scientists would say, no, it couldn't because it defies the laws. But we would say, hang on a minute. Look at the New Testament. There are credible witnesses who lived and who were still alive at the time when uh, books like uh, 1 Corinthians were written, where people were telling accounts, uh, where Paul was talking about the resurrection of Christ. People were still alive at that time who could have refuted what happened. We've seen the change in the lives of the disciples who were cowering in one sense, but then were willing to die after the resurrection for that belief. We've seen the evidence over and over again that this happened. And overwhelming evidence, people have said, for the resurrection. You can scientifically look at, at, at so many of the credible witnesses to the resurrection and believe. Miracles, just because they're not part of the normal way of science measuring things, doesn't mean they haven't actually happened. And scientific, scientists to be able to say, let's write it off because it doesn't fit within the natural laws, are writing it off because they just believe that everything happens within the natural laws. But when God intervenes, uh, we know it can be checked scientifically and there's enough evidence to be able to have a credible faith, not blind faith. Final thing. Evolution explains life. So God isn't needed. Uh, for many of us, when we came to school, we, we were taught about evolution. We are taught that what simply has now uh, been proven, it was presented as absolute fact, that evolution is what, what has happened. And in uh, the case for faith, Lee Strobel likens evolution and the way in which it's been so broadly and widely accepted as what happened in America when they used evidence for hair follicles um, as linking people to the case and actually convicting people of murder based on hair follicles being found at the crime scene. He said initially everyone believed that this was such conclusive evidence that people were put on death row because of this. And he said, but what they found was hair is very similar uh, to, to many others. Just by looking at it and seeing that it's brown, that it's this texture and all that, doesn't really prove very much at all. And he thinks that whilst when it comes to evolution, microevolution, you know, um, changes within the species, you know, how we see all the different kinds of dogs and different kinds of animals, while that can be, you know, quite um, accepted, macroevolution where different species evolve, you know, is still largely a theory. And the one thing that evolution has not been able to actually uh, conclusively show, and this is the Achilles heel of evolution, is how life began how life actually began. And uh, so what is the biggest, biggest problem with the atheist's view of evolution is that for life to come from nothing and to form for something into something is just the most biggest miracle that it's almost... Um, uh, 
It's such a huge leap to think that this could have actually happened in a little cesspool uh, that happened. There was an actual guy in Chicago um, at the University of Chicago named Stanley Miller, and he did a test to experiment whether uh, they could actually, he could create life form out of nothing. And his findings of this uh, controlled sort of experiment were widely accepted and held. And, and it, was, it was amazing, uh, the findings. And they said, this is just absolutely incredible. But when they found out about the life forms forming, the actual compounds that he used uh, were almost absolutely certainly not the ones that were existent at the very beginning of time. So he had used different compounds, completely different than what would have been at the start of time. And, and so for there to come from nothing, something, is a huge, huge jump. And even agnostics, people who don't know, even scientists together, uh, look back and say, the way this world is seems to point that there is an intelligent designer. Why don't you just have a look at this uh, DVD just for a moment and um, let you see what this guy thinks, an, a, a scientist. One is the theory of random chance, that our, our world just came together through random chance. But anybody who knows anything about the way in which our cells are formed uh, knows that that would be absolutely staggering to even have one cell to come out of nothing randomly. Uh, someone has said it would be like a hurricane going through a junkyard and, and putting together a Boeing 747. You know, just that, that's how incredible it would be for us to come randomly out of nothing without, a, without some intelligent design behind. Uh, some people have put forward a theory of, of chemical affinity where um, because certain chemicals might react together, they might form and increase the chances of us, you know, randomly, but with this chemical affinity happening. But that too seems to be just one that so many people, it's, it's, it's not credible, it's fallen by the way. The self-ordering tendencies is another theory that has come up. Another one is seeding from space. And uh, it seems that frustrated by, you know, seemingly insurmountable obstacles to chemical evolution on Earth. Some scientists um, have, have proposed that the building blocks for life come from somewhere else in space and um, that somehow uh, the particles could reach Earth without being incinerated. Like, it just seems like we're jumping so ridiculously away from logical things just to find how life began. And the, the fifth theory is vents in the ocean and even some of the world's um, best thinkers on uh, atheism say this is just a ridiculous idea that there are vents at the bottom of the ocean and out of these heat was where life be began. Uh, another theory is life from clay and these are all um, uh, attested and talked about um, and responded to in the case for faith. But it seems that the best response, and even today, uh, that people can give, uh, atheists can give for the beginning of life is, is bafflement. See, see what this scientist said when, they, uh, when he, he tries to grapple with where life began.
So we would say the best answer is that there is an intelligent designer, that there is a God who is worth giving your whole life to and getting to know and to follow him. Um, tonight, you know, we've looked at, uh, you know, is it just blind faith? We said, no, faith, we don't want you to have blind faith. Just believe, reasonable faith that God is alive and that he wants to have a relationship with you. And that this world is not random, you know, that, that there is an intelligent designer who wants to come to know you. Uh, miracles. If there is a God who made this heaven and earth and is an intelligent designer, and if he wants to get to know you, he could easily, if he can create this world, he could easily come the way he did into this world, die and rise again, defeating sin, and making it possible for you to have a relationship with a holy God. And finally, when you think about evolution and the greatest minds trying to realise how things began, and you read Genesis chapter 1 that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It, It cries out with everything within me to say, Jonathan... Your faith is reasonable. Your faith is grounded. And the God that I know is the God who made this planet. Why why else would we believe? Just five quick reasons. God makes sense of the universe's origin. We've talked about that tonight. God made sense of the universe's complexity, the way we're made up. There's no other answer except that there is an intelligent mind that has made us who we are, our eyes to see uh, in the incredible way our pupils work, the retina, everything that works in there. We are fascinating in our makeup. God makes sense of objective morals. If we are just random by chance, how do we know that it's wrong to kill and, and hate? How do we know that there's right and wrong Where does that come from if we're just random? God makes sense of the resurrection. If God, uh, if there is a God, of course he would come and and save his people and love his people. And do you know the final reason for God is God that can be immediately experienced. I think many atheists, many people don't believe because in the past they've been greatly hurt by people who tried to tell them what they must believe or maybe abused by the church or hurt or mistreated. Uh, Some, uh, though, wrestle and just have not asked enough of the right questions. Some keep searching for ways other than looking for God. But God is not far from each one. And just like Thomas, when he said, show me, I'm not going to believe until I show me the hands and your feet. Just an honest cry out that says, God, would you reveal yourself to me? It was a great beginning. What would Jesus say to an atheist? I think he'd just say, hello. <laughs> you know, Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. I'm standing at the door of your heart. I'm knocking. He says, if anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with them. and I'll have fellowship with you. If, if you open the door of your heart, I will come in. And Jeremiah 
uh, in there, God said, if you seek me, you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. Faith is credible. Let's pray together. God, we're so thankful that we don't just have to blindly believe. Thank you for so many reasons to believe tonight. And God, thank you. And more than anything, we know you and we love you. You've changed our lives. We pray for Josh and for Kylie and for Sylvia tonight. Thank you for their faith, for their public declaration. God bless their lives, we pray. Strengthen them because of this faith. And God, for each of us, may we respond to you tonight. Grow deeper in our faith, deeper in our love for you. May we not check out our brains and may we not stop asking questions. But God, may you continue to lead us to stronger, deeper faith in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, right where you are.